0: Prizes every day, right Lincoln? Praise the Lord, what a wonderful day we have here on Palm Sunday. Looking forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ next Sunday. If you are uh, back from a vacation or possibly uh, had been gone for a week or two, and had missed where we were in Ruth, we're back in chapter 3. And uh, we'll pick up in verse 14, and finish that briefly, and then talk a little bit about Palm Sunday. But if you've been out a little bit, and you could feel like you're kind of entering in the middle of a movie, you're coming in, this is a narrative, the book of Ruth. And it tells a story about these real-life people who lived about 1,300 years before Jesus Christ. And through observing their lives, we can look at our own and understand what Christ, what God wants from us. And uh, you might feel like you're kind of coming in the middle and not understanding a few of the principles. One that will be important today is the one of Kinsman Redeemer. And let me just briefly state again that uh, this would be a relative, a brother actually, of a man who died. This relative redeemer would be tasked with marrying the widow if she had no children. The purpose would be not only that she would have children, but primarily that the name of the deceased brother would be carried on. This was a responsibility according to the law in Israel. If the deceased man did not have any brothers, as is the case with this situation, It was provided the opportunity for someone else further, a more distant relative, perhaps an uncle, a cousin, a brother. We don't know the relationship exactly of Boaz uh, to the deceased Elimelech. But this would provide an opportunity for someone else to step in, not under the law, but by grace to fill that void. And as we departed our text last week, Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer, uh, had just made a commitment to redeem and marry Ruth, the widow. There remains one caveat, if you remember from last week. There's one relative left who is closer in relationship to Naomi and Ruth than Boaz is. He would be the first in line, so to speak, to marry and redeem Ruth. You might ask, why is that even important? If Ruth and Boaz are in love and they're going to get married, uh, what does it matter who else might be in the picture? Why would it matter if there's a closer relative, if there's that romantic spark, why don't they just run away and get married somewhere, as we might do today? The reason is, is because they aren't in love, at least not in the way that love is defined in our modern mixed-up culture. Many Americans today view love as a feeling, it's an emotional high, more often Today we hear that it is described as a passionate sexual desire. That's how America talks about love, many of them. That's not love, it's lust. An emotional high is never given as a biblical prerequisite for entering into a lifelong covenant of marriage. Feelings, emotions, sexual desires, they all constantly change. Constantly change. They're fleeting. They represent nothing that is stable enough for a man and woman to build a permanent relationship on. If you don't believe me, go ahead and look around in Hollywood. You'll see what that gets you. Biblical marriage must be built on a foundation that's solid because God wants it to last. When Christ was asked by the religious elite in his day in Matthew chapter 19... He was asked if it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason at all. Many believed that. A man could just write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. Jesus pointed them to the authority of Scripture, as he typically did. He says, Have you not read, meaning pointing back to Scripture, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, Jesus says, let no man separate. You can also note that Jesus said the very reason for marriage is that God had created male and female sexes. That is Jesus' definition of marriage. In the Bible, Jesus says that when you enter into marriage, you're going to join yourself to another person permanently. The reasons for this permanence are so extensive that I can't go into all of them today and it's not my main point. But let's just honestly and courageously concede that as the valuation of marriage collapses in our culture, so does our society. Divorce, broken homes... Fatherless children, custody lawsuits, remarriage to other people who've had multiple partners, resulting sexually transmitted diseases, poverty, alcoholism, anger, depression. These all destroy people. It's not it's not, a, not a quiz. It's not a, something that we don't know. This is clearly knowledgeable. God doesn't want that to happen. But these things broadly originate in our culture from the unwillingness to view marriage as a permanent covenant relationship between a man and a woman. In fact, marriage is so important to a society that Satan continuously attempts to redefine it, destroy it, and eliminate it as we know it biblical marriage. That will plunge a society into immorality and chaos. So the sanctity of marriage is foundational to any healthy, functioning, and flourishing society. My point is, is that she makes me feel good, or his eyes are dreamy. I feel sparks when we hold hands. These are not a basis for biblical marriage. And I also don't want you to get me wrong here. I I do think that Ruth and Boaz have an affection towards one another. I do think that that is in the picture, but it's an attraction that is based primarily upon character. As we've learned over several weeks now, she's witnessed his his generosity. He has seen her loyalty to Naomi in providing for that widow. He's observed her tenacity to work. She has been there when he has greeted the workers in his field in the name of God. It's, she's seen that he is kind. These are both people of high moral character. And let's face it. You know, Ruth is a young widow. She wants to be married. She wants to be remarried. And God wants her to be remarried. She wants her, he wants her to be remarried to someone with dignified character. The Apostle Paul warns about the many dangers that can confront a young widow who is now alone. That doesn't have a caring spouse, a home, or a purpose in life. In First Timothy chapter five, verse thirteen, he describes the peril of that type of situation. We all face types types of things like this in our society. This isn't isolated. It happens in my family. It happens in your family. We've observed these types of things. It's so prevalent in our society. Paul says, referring to widows, typically, he's saying they also learn to be idle. They go around from house to house and not merely idle, but then become gossips and busybodies talking about things that are not proper to mention. This is a typical result of someone who doesn't have a place to be, a purpose, a where to go to, someone to share their life with. How often have we experienced, even in our culture, a young person, a young divorcée who has lost their way. They are passed from place to place. In their depression, they've gone from staying with one person to another. It's painful. That can lure them into all kinds of different things. That's what Paul is warning about. He wants Ruth to be remarried. Let's pick up where we left off in Ruth chapter 3 and verse 14. So she lay at his feet, at Boaz's feet, until morning. And rose before one could recognize her. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So she rested near his feet. Again, as we clearly mentioned last week, there's no funny business going on here at all. She just simply laid at his feet. And Boaz says to her and If anyone else was within earshot, we don't know. Uh, He reminded her as well to tell Naomi, let no one know that you came to the threshing floor. Boaz knows how gossip works. It starts as a casual remark, then becomes a small suggestion. The next thing you know, somebody starts a rumor that there's been immorality going on on the threshing floor. That could impact Ruth's reputation. It could scar her. So Boaz here in this act is protecting her. Let no one know. We shouldn't be surprised that Boaz has concerns about this, about this woman that he cares for, because there's, there could be misrepresentations of what actually happened. In fact, when you look around, unscrupulous pastors today and commentators everywhere are, in fact, saying that inappropriate things went on here. We talked about that last week, when they didn't. So Boaz knows how things can be perceived. They're being misperceived even today. So to avoid these rumors, he sends her home early in the morning, early enough where no one could recognize her. In verse 15, again Boaz said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. This word for cloak here is a rare term. It only applies uh, twice in the Bible. It probably illustrates some type of veil that she wore. Some type of veil she could hold up. The text says, So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. We also aren't sure what the unit of measure is here. That's why most texts just leave it out and call it a measure. Uh, a couple texts call it an, an ephah. Probably isn't. That would have been too heavy. Uh, many speculate it would, is what is known as a siah, which would be smaller, which six of them would be about 60 pounds total. That's probably the reason that Boaz had to set it upon her, or some texts say lay it on her. Uh, A woman like Ruth wouldn't typically lift this much and place it on her head. She would have a helper there as the women work together. In this case, Boaz lays it on her. Then when she'd arrive home, she would greet Naomi. and She would have on her head approximately double what she arrived home with the very first day that she worked in Boaz's field about two months earlier. She's got a load on. So by his generosity again, Boaz is showing his commitment in this situation. In verse 16 it says, When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi said, How did it go, my daughter? And Ruth told her all that the man had done for her. Ruth said, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. So here he shows that he's not only concerned about Ruth, he's, he's concerned about her family, her mother-in-law. He already knows, of course, that Ruth has sworn an oath to care for Naomi in her old age, that Naomi was going to be caring for her, and he realizes if it comes to the point where he can marry her, if the other relative steps aside, that he was getting a package deal in this situation, in this proposal. You know, we need to know most of the time we're getting a package deal. A lot of people don't realize that. Uh, Your potential spouse is not usually going to be a sole prize. There's going to be a bonus package that comes with it. Your bonus package is probably going to consist of the form of a mother-in-law, a father-in-law, siblings-in-law, probably those pesky cousins as well. Um, Don't think that you can just move to another coast and escape it all. That's futile. You cannot escape it all. And Take it from me, you can be separated by an ocean, by thousands of miles, even by a language that is different than yours. But for the grace of God, those in-laws are yours. You have to accept that fact. Boaz has done so. He's going to love them because he knows that they are part of her family. Fortunately, all of my in-laws are perfect. I love them deeply. There's absolutely nothing I can complain about. But it is a package deal. It's also obvious in the text that Boaz is not only willing, he's also wanting Ruth. He's wanting to redeem her. But the matter's not yet settled as Naomi had hoped it would be. In fact, her greeting to Ruth seems a bit unusual. Many English Bibles translate this, How did it go, my daughter? It's probably what yours says. Um, Naomi more literally says, and I think this is represented better in the King James, uh, she more literally says, Who are you, my daughter? Who are you? Now why would she ask that? The reason comes clear when we recognize that Naomi was sending Ruth out that evening prior to solicit what equates to a marriage proposal. Ruth was asking Boaz to ask her to marry him. That's what she went out to do. So when Ruth left Naomi that evening before, she was considered by everyone in the community to be the widow of Milan. Malon, Milan. That was her identity. Now, what Naomi was probably hoping here when she returned is that from her encounter, now she would be the soon to be new Mrs. Boaz. So when Ruth comes through the door, she asks, Who are you? What's your identity now? Ruth has to respond, Well, it's complicated. She says, I am typically or technically the the widow of Malon. Uh, I might become the new Mrs. Boaz, but I could instead end up married to someone else, the other relative, who's first in line. The good part here is she is going to end up with a redeemer. Boaz has assured that. She's going to end up with a husband. Boaz is second in line. The bad part is she does not know who it's going to be. How many times have I said during this book, as we've been studying it, grace is so much better than law. The closer relative is going to get his opportunity. Boaz is way too honest of a man. He has too much integrity to cut out his Jewish brother in order to get something that he wants. He's going to give his Jewish brother the opportunity that he deserves. Why, again, this book of Ruth is not placed into the canon of Scripture by God as a love story? It's placed to provide us role models, real life role models, male and female, to observe what God sees as honesty, morality, and integrity. Godly role models are what every society needs. It is what this little town, Bethlehem, in Israel needed back then. It is exactly what Port St. Lucie needs today, our godly role models. When his neighbors observed Boaz... When they see his behavior, he wants them to think well of who his God is. He wants to represent his God well in his his situation that is following the law. As we noticed last week, when this redemptive marriage occurs, when it finally happens, we're going to learn in in chapter 4, there is a piece of land that is going to go along with this package deal. Naomi has land uh, of Elimelech her deceased husband, that will be passed along in this transaction. There's property. There's assets involved with this. Boaz isn't just going to cut out a brother or neighbor because there might be assets so that he can get what he wants. Boaz wants this entire transaction to be done out in the open on the table where everyone can see it. He's determined that if the Lord wills, if the Lord is in control, he and, and that he and Ruth are going to be married, it isn't going to be by sidestepping God's law and then pulling the wool over the eyes of a close relative. I'd say not only that, but Boaz also doesn't want to spend the remainder of his life with everyone in the neighborhood realizing that he cheated out a closer relative in order to marry Ruth. That will tag them for the remainder of their lives in a small community like Bethlehem. So he lays everything out in the open. He's going to gather some of the town elders, we will see, as witnesses. And he's going to call in the closer relative and explain the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he's going to tell that relative, now choose. You've got your opportunity, choose. So in reality, right now at this point, Ruth has no idea who she belongs to. She doesn't know who she is. Naomi reassures her in verse 18, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until it's settled today. Naomi knows you will not agonize for long, Ruth. Boaz is a man of commitment. He is prudent and he goes after what he wants. But for the next few hours, Ruth isn't exactly sure who she is. She wants it settled as quickly as possible. This is where we'll pick up the narrative the week after Easter. We will see what happens with Ruth. To redirect our focus for a few minutes to the day that we have at hand now, Palm Sunday, let me ask you this. Have you identified who you belong to? Ruth here isn't really sure who her redeemer is at this point. Who's going to redeem her from this situation? How about you? This is Palm Sunday. It's a day of the week where God's son rode on the colt of a donkey into Jerusalem. He ultimately faces rejection, humiliation, arrest, and then was crucified to death. You see, when you read the text describing this, Matthew chapter 21, the week started fine. Sunday started fine. He, he rode into town. People were laying their coats on the road. They were taking down branches, palm leaves, and paving the road for their king. Jesus had preached to the Jews to a level of wisdom and authority that they had never heard before. At one point during his ministry, He gave the most amazing sermon that has ever been delivered. It is called the Sermon on the Mount. In that, he challenged everyone with the final words to that sermon that you can review in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. He says to the, the crowds, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, it says, the crowds were amazed. At his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. That's referring to the whole sermon that Jesus had given. They were amazed. In addition to the astounding teaching, you had the healings and the miracles that Jesus was performing. They were so amazing that many Jews were convinced that he is just the type of king that they're looking for. Finally, they anticipated a king now with wisdom, authority, a ruler with power to heal. Who wouldn't want that? People had heard Jesus could even control the weather. He could calm the storm. There's a buzz about him. Certainly, they were convinced that Jesus would be able to liberate them from the Roman armies that ruled Jerusalem and Israel during this time. They had been oppressing Israel for about 100 years at this point. And the Jews despised the fact that they were being controlled by Gentiles. They despised the Roman Gentiles. And there were actually many in the Jewish society that were hoping to stir up a rebellion to fight against this Roman occupation. Virtually everyone saw promise in this young miracle worker named Jesus. In fact, on one occasion earlier on in his ministry... Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000. Do you remember that? The crowds who had been fed, sought to, it says, seize him. And the narrative says, it was in an effort to forcibly make him king. In the people's minds, he'd be a king who, if he could feed thousands and raise the dead, heal the sick, he certainly could raise an army that could defeat Rome too. He probably would be a successful military king like David. They observed he could heal blindness, they could cure leprosy. The reason that these people laid out their coats and their palm branches and paved the way for this king upon his first triumphal entry is that on Palm Sunday, they were selfish. The good news that they were looking for was a gospel that would make them powerful, would make their lives easier, make them wealthier, and provide miraculous healings on demand. That's the type of theology that they were willing to embrace. As a culture, history shows, they were not nearly as excited about turning from their sins and repenting. I should add, this is exactly the type of gospel offered today by many preachers across the United States and around the world. You will hear them preach luxury cars, perfect health, financial success. It's called the prosperity gospel. That is a false gospel. What the Israelites in Jerusalem thought they were getting in Jesus was a king who could provide them everything that they wanted. Prosperity. As a group, they weren't seeking repentance. They didn't desire a life of purity. They didn't desire righteousness or wholesomeness. They weren't concerned that their sins offend God. They weren't worried about finding that path back to reconciliation to God. They didn't value spiritual salvation They weren't thinking about God's mercy, his forgiveness, his grace. They wanted a king that would serve their desires. That's how they were looking at Christ. How about you? Who are you in this situation, in this picture? The warm welcome that he received, the open arms didn't last long for Jesus. Immediately, as Christ entered in Jerusalem, conflict erupted right off the bat. His first act on Palm Sunday, if you remember, was not to drive Roman soldiers out of Jerusalem. The act was to drive sin out of the temple. The result was that the chief priests and the scribes became furious. He'd interfered with their most profitable religious week of the year. This was the week leading up to Passover. There was a whole lot of money to be made. They had lots of things they needed to sell in the temple. This was their profit season. That evening, Jesus and his disciples retreated. They they went to rest in a nearby town called Bethany. The remainder of that holy week, up to the crucifixion now, would sour. In the morning, as they walked towards Jerusalem, Jesus came upon a fig tree. And he looked at this fig tree, and he looked for fruit. This fig tree symbolizes, we know, Jerusalem. It is a real tree. There was no fruit on it indicating repentance. Jesus cursed that tree, and it says it immediately withered. To the point where the disciples who were with him were astounded. Along with it, and nearly as quick the mood of Jerusalem withered as well. Over the next five days, Jesus continues to expose greed, false religion, legalistic righteousness. The Pharisees became so indignant that they schemed to trick Jesus and plot to kill him. The only thing that restrains their rage, restrains their plans, is the mood of the people. The people here are still hoping that Jesus is the one who will deliver them from Rome. They're hoping that he would still be the one. So the Pharisees didn't dare act. They're afraid that they might incite a riot with the people if they did something out in the open. So they execute instead a plan of stealth. They arrest Jesus at night. It's in secrecy. Before daybreak on the morning... After, they rush him through a kangaroo court. Though they could not find any consistent testimony about Jesus, they have to push for some kind of charge at this point. Finally, the high priest got right into Jesus' face and demanded that he answer this question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Most Blessed One, the Most High God? Jesus replied to him, I am. That text in Mark 14 says, They all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him, and they blindfolded him. They beat him in the face. They beat him with their fists, and they said to him, Prophesy! That means to speak forth God's word, to prophesy. He was always quoting God's word. They say, now prophesy. Let's hear it now. And then they gave him to the officers. It says that they received him with slaps to the face. So now the priests return Jesus to Pilate. And effectually the crowd begins to view him differently. Instead of seeing a courageous leader, a miracle worker, a healer, a deliverer, now they see a man badly bruised, beaten, bloody. Do you think that their perception has changed? This guy isn't going to save us. Look at him. He can't even save himself. He can't give us all we want. In fact, they started to contend. Boy, he's starting to look a whole lot like a fraud to me. It appears to the crowd as if now the Romans are getting the best of him. He's in their handcuffs now. He's bound by them. He is in their court. The crowd realizes they didn't sign up for this. They begin to resent Jesus for it. This isn't what we wanted. Incited by the priests and scribes, what do they ultimately cry out? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. And on that fateful fateful day, at the same time that the Passover lambs were being prepared for slaughter at the temple, that'd be commemorating how God's judgment and death had passed over Israel while they're in Egypt. At the same time, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was being slaughtered so that God's judgment and death could pass over all of them who'd be willing to believe. So, do you believe? What is it that you believe? Do you believe that Jesus came to make Christians healthy, wealthy, and wise? If so, what do you say then to those among us here who are sick and poor today? Do you believe that Jesus was on a mission to empower us to conquer all of our enemies? To conquer poverty, to conquer anything that stands in our way. Are we conquerors in this life? Spiritually, yes. But are we conquering every situation we run into? Or are we facing sin and death? A turn towards the apostles, who each suffered, were persecuted and punished, Most of them martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. So if you say that we're here to conquer, I'd ask you, what would you say to those now overseas that because of their faith in Jesus Christ are being murdered and executed and killed and beaten? That's not the answer. Do you believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who is punished for our sins as the prophets had foretold. Is he the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Scripture says, He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Isaiah the prophet wrote that over 700 years before Christ was born. It was centuries before the if you want to call it art of crucifixion, the method of crucifixion, centuries before that had ever been developed, Isaiah's writing about this. And then King David described the Messiah's death a thousand years before it happened. He writes in Psalm 22. Note this Psalm 22. The dogs have surrounded me. He's describing the Messiah. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. That's what David said a thousand years before in Psalm 22. He perfectly describes how the Christ would be shamed before he was glorified. And do you know how that same Psalm 22 opens? The words. The first words of Psalm 22, those words are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the same words that Jesus utters on the cross, the Psalm of David. The talk about piercing his hands, his feet, dividing their clothing amongst them, casting lots, all that was going on at that same time. Jesus wasn't wondering why God had forsook him. Jesus knew very well as God why he was forsaken at the cross. He already knew why. What he was doing was he was prompting those Jews to go and read Psalm 22. That would remind them of what was happening to him at that very moment. Every Jew would have been familiar with the opening words of Psalm 22. would have gone something like in Hebrew, Elohim. Eloi, lama sabachthani. Very common words. They would have known exactly what Jesus was doing as he spoke those words. It would be comparative and familiarity in their culture as us saying, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They knew exactly that that was the opening of Psalm 22 written by David. They should have gone there and seen I believe some did. Why did God forsake Jesus? Why did Christ suffer pain and anguish and separation from his Father? The answer today is you. You are why he did it. It's because of your sin, my sin included. Your sin needed to be punished so that you could be set free from the penalty of your sin, which is death and be restored to fellowship, reconciled to a holy and just and wonderful God. Jesus opened that door. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. For you are continually strained like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That is what the crucifixion is about. He died in our place. He lived a life we cannot live. He died a death we could not afford to pay. He was our substitute of righteousness. So now, all who believe in him stand blameless at the judgment. Amen. And it's not over. It's not in the least bit over. The crucifixion is not the end It is merely the beginning. Next week we are going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Scripture affirms that as he was resurrected that Jesus was seen by all of the apostles, by the women, by many others, and at one point more than 500 people at one time. The graves were opened. Jesus says, I am the way the truth and the life, no man comes but to the Father but through me. That is a profession of a Christian. Are you a Christian? Do you believe in the Son of God, in the Christ? Have you surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life? Please do so please do I exhort you today to make this final. Turn from your desires, which live inside of all of us, turn from your desires and your sin and worship and serve the one who died for you. It's called repentance. Your Father, you are so marvelous and so majestic, so just and so righteous, Lord God, to have orchestrated an event like this. Lord, to take our sin, what we deserve for all of our evil and wicked acts that all of us are guilty of, Lord, and to lay them upon your Son as a sacrifice for us. Dear Lord, we are so grateful today that you've offered yourself as a Redeemer to reclaim that which was lost, that which was fleeing, that which was running from you, dear God. And you provided a Redeemer to us by which we can be saved. Lord, I plead with you, we plead with you, if there's anyone here who hasn't accepted Christ, understood why you came, your purpose, Lord God, recognize their sin, we pray now that you would open their eyes, open their hearts and minds to the understanding of the truth, that this life is short, it's fleeting, and soon we'll stand before you. Dear Lord, I pray that each and every one of us here, when we do that, we will get the record of Jesus to our account, not guilty. Lord, please bless us as we think this week and pray this week, worship you this week, thinking about Good Friday coming, the crucifixion of Christ, Lord, and then come back together on Resurrection, Resurrection Sunday and worship with joy. And reverence, celebration, Lord God, that the grave is now empty, that the debt is now paid, and that we are now reconciled to you. Lord, we are so incredibly blessed. In Jesus' holy and exalted name we pray. Amen.